0: We are doing this three-part series on... uh, I can't remember if we titled it, but it's basically redemption uh, accomplished. Nope, that's not what it is. It's redemption applied. It's talking about what Jesus has done. That's redemption accomplished. What they uh, say in Latin, Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. That's been accomplished. And now we're talking about how does what Jesus did get applied to us? How do we get that salvation? Um, And that's uh, in Latin, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. If you wanna ask questions more about that later, you can. But we're taking a brief look at some of these major aspects. The first one was union with Jesus, uh, 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 of being united to him by grace through faith. Now we're considering actually the benefits of that salvation justification, next time, sanctification. There are other benefits. We could talk about glorification. We could talk about adoption, uh, but we're, we're limiting ourselves to a just three-part series here. These are some of the big ones. So, today we're talking about justification. Just, and if y'all can't hear me, just let me know if this goes out. Uh, justification, just a spoiler, has everything to do with being right before God having a right status before God, being justified before God himself. So with that, show of hands, who would like to meet God? <laughs> <That's good. laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, it is kind of a trick. These are always trick questions. All right, how about this? We'll come back to that. Who feels, who feels if they were to die, God forbid, right now, if you were to die right now, Uh, Or, if Jesus were to come back, right, right now, right now, right now, man, that would have been so cool, Um, what if you were to die right now, or if Jesus were to come back right now, who here would feel like there is some unfinished business between them and God? We don't have to show hands anymore, you can show hands if you want to. (laughs) Uh, okay, anyone ever imagine, anyone ever imagine what God looks like when you close your eyes to pray, you close your eyes, the image that comes to mind, God's there, maybe arms are folded, foot's tapping, and, then, and what you see is, oh, well look, you decided to pray. Hey, nice of you to show up today. Okay, as in God is, who feels like God's constantly disappointed in them? Um, anyone feel like God is punishing you? For mistakes that you have made for, for mistakes you're making right now recently you feel you feel like god's withholding good stuff from you or he's actually bringing bad stuff into your life like any of that stuff all of that stuff those are all justification issues uh and justification issues that you have with god and then there are justification issues that you have with god that affect your issues with other people as in uh anyone here have a hard time with criticism show of hands yeah uh someone criticizes you or dares to disagree with you uh and uh and you're you know it's like inner lawyer activate and you go into defense mode and you got to explain away why you said what you said or why you didn't say what you should have said why you did what you did or or didn't do, that's a justification issue. The stuff of overworking, uh, the stuff of addiction uh, to anything, those are justification issues. they are also sanctification, we'll we'll get into sanctification stuff too, but those have to do with your justification. Uh, So these are just kind of teasers. Let me ask you this, why do we need justification? Anyone wanna take a stab at it? Like, why do you need justification before God? Tim. You'll get smoked. Get smoked because? Why would you get smoked if you don't have justification? If you're not justified? All the horrible things you've done. So, in a nutshell, why do you need justification? Well, sin. The bad things I've done. Uh, uh, what would be how about this what's the second half of that the bad things I've done and the could you add to anything that so we'll bring that together wrath of God for bad things I've done and things I have not done and that really gets at it as in uh, there's another way to ask this what is God's expectation of you? What For your life, for your behavior, what is God's standard for your life? The REF students should say, perfection. We've talked about this a lot. Perfection. Usually when I ask people that, uh, it, it's a, well, what does God expect of me? He expects, like, love him, worship, uh, help others. You know, go to church. Uh, means of grace stuff. Get involved in the means of grace stuff. Um, you know, there's, you know, be a good person. God has one standard, and it is nothing less than perfection itself. So, with that, before moving on, you pause there. Why is that? Why is that important? Like, why is God's standard of perfection important with regard to justification? Who's that, Laura? Because we can't be perfect. But we are supposed to be perfect. As in, like, you, you are supposed to live a perfect life. It's not just... Uh, so, justification is not just about the consequences of not meeting the standard of perfection. Uh, it's... Wh- how about this? What is the reward for living a perfect life? Hypothetically speaking. The reward would be heaven. You, or you would earn the reward of heaven if you lived, hypothetically, if you lived, you know, aside from falling in Adam and all that, we'll come to that. But here, here's the point is, how do you get to heaven? There's only one way to get to heaven. One, you have to earn it. You have to. That is what heaven is. It is the reward for those who have been justified in God's sight. You have to earn heaven. That's the only way to get there. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that heaven must be merited. It must be merited by a complete and perfect righteous life. Case in point, before the fall, Adam, he's not a sinner. He's created good, not a sinner. He still needs to be justified. For the fall, Adam was innocent. He is without sin, but he did not yet possess eternal life. He was still... More, uh, I want to say that he was not yet mortal. Not mortal in the sense that we are mortal and we are destined to die, but he was also not immortal. And we know that because he died. So, which means he did not have eternal life. So, Adam is created... Uh, he's created not possessing eternal life, but he's created with the opportunity to earn eternal life, merit it. According to, this is Genesis 1 to 3 stuff. If you want to get all the details of this, we've got a series on covenant theology. Run there to get the ins and outs of this. But uh, in in the beginning, God created Adam. And uh, as he creates Adam in that creation, he enters into a covenant of works with Adam in order to give him the possibility of earning the right to life. So this is Westminster Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 2. It says this, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity all the children that are given from him upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. that's too loud, we can turn it up. Y'all tell me if you can't hear me with that. Um, So we, uh, as in, we all know like the negative, the bad constant, the cursed side of the arrangement with God, between Adam and God. If Adam sins, he dies forever. But there was also a positive side to the arrangement, blessing side to the arrangement. If he obeyed, he would have earned eternal life. And we know how it turned out and unfortunately it gets worse uh uh, because it's not just about adam Uh, adam not only incurred the negative curse side of that arrangement for himself he also brought that on for everybody else he represented uh and he represented everybody everybody as the head of mankind so if adam had been successful done what he was supposed to do Uh, then he would have been successful for everyone, and everybody would have been confirmed in righteousness. You would have been born confirmed in righteousness before God. Adam would have secured eternal glory, not only for himself, but for all of mankind. But he messed it all up. Messes it up uh, in the fall, and now we are all confirmed in unrighteousness before God. As in Adam, secured eternal punishment for himself and for all of mankind. That's physical and that's spiritual death forever. That's that's the hell stuff. And you know, you want to get really mad at Adam? Aside from Adam, you do it too, and so do I. This personal sin stuff. Um, and we do it all the time. That means you have a really big problem. Paul in Romans 3:10 says, uh, "As it is written." That means he's quoting from the Old Testament. So this is not new to the New Testament. Bible has always said that since the fall, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. A few verses later, he adds, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. A couple chapters later, he gets to the big bad news, Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. And that's the, that is death death. Like the original death that Adam earned, condemnation, forever death. And the Bible says there are two fundamental consequences to your sin. We, we started talking about that last time with union. One major consequence of sin is that it affects your status before God. Sin renders us, we are now inexcusably guilty before God. Uh, uh, liable to his just wrath. We deserve eternal condemnation. The other fundamental consequence affects our our condition, our disposition, our character. That's the stuff we gotta talk about next time with sanctification. Uh, So today, the stuff of status. The question is how can a sinful person be right before God? So again, who here would like to meet God? This is Exodus chapter 20. All the Israelites have come to Mount Sinai, they've been freed, they've been freed from Egypt. It's awesome, and they get to Mount Sinai. And uh, they get to the mountain and God comes down in His glory on this mountain so that the whole thing is on fire. It says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking on fire, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, uh, You speak to us, and we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Isaiah 6, when God God makes Isaiah a prophet, Isaiah is caught up into heaven in a vision, and this is his reaction, or he's really caught up to heaven. His reaction appearing at the throne of God is this, And I said, Woe is me! I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Job 42, this is at the end of Job. God finally shows up, and Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Revelation 1, Uh, John is there on the island of Patmos. Jesus shows up glorified. And John said, this is John, Jesus' best friend. John sees him, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And really, you read that passage, he is having a heart attack. So when sinful people get caught up into the presence of God and when they stand before him, they feel like dying. Because as sinners, they are terrified of of the holiness awesomeness brilliance of god when you used to ask uh jews uh, you know a friend jewish friend told me this so i'm not sure at what time back in the day he was talking about but said jews greatest fear and greatest desire is to meet god uh so the question is how can a sinful people stand justified before god in all his glory it can't be by your own works But, does this not make sense? Here's, we're getting into some application stuff. Does this not make sense of why you think it has to? (laughs) I had it all pinned down. Does this not make sense? I can wing it. Um, Thank you. Does this not make sense of, thank you, darling. Does this not make sense of why you think it has to be by your works? This stuff of, um, how are you going to get justified before God? How are you going to get justified before God? Uh, I was teaching this once. I um, teaching this covenant. This was during a covenant theology part. I uh, was teaching it. One of my friends stood up and asked. <laughs> I'm sure some of y'all are thinking the same thing. Uh, one of my friends asked me, very good question. What is the payout of seeing a covenant of works in the garden with Adam? because there's, there's now this new, it's more recent, but this new debate of, I think it was always a covenant of grace, even before the fall, that God always related by covenant of grace. This, time, this has come more and more into um, some of the church stuff and I'm up there arguing, no, before the fall, it's gotta be covenant of works. And he said, what's the payout? What's the payout for seeing a covenant of works in the garden before the fall? What difference does it make to me? This is the payout. We all know that this is true, deep, deep deep down inside of each and every one of us. Both Christians and non-Christians, we have this notion ingrained in us that we are worthy of God, that we are worthy of heaven, that we are worthy of a good afterlife, that we are good enough uh, that our life, that our good deeds, they count for something, they should count for something. This is, this is why every other religion, Every other philosophy, at the core of it is, you want to get to that next part, the good stuff, the good life? You have to live a good life. This is why the prosperity gospel is so enticing. Because it seems to make sense. If I live a good life, yeah, God will bless me. Yeah, God wants good things for me. This is why we get mad when bad stuff happens to us. That stuff of, God, I do not deserve this. Or we get mad when good things happen to other people, other people who are bad people, and good stuff happens to them and not us. Like, that's not fair. What about me, God? And and this is so offensive to say, it's so offensive to say to other people, listen, you're not good enough. You're actually not good. Uh, You're not good in God's sight because of your sin. Like. Doesn't this make sense of why non Christians are so offended by this gospel? Why we're offended by this gospel. We have this covenant of works ingrained on our hearts that I can justify myself before God because that's how we were created in the beginning. Uh, this is, we're all born, there's another way to say it covenantally. We are all born into this covenant of works with Adam because we all descend from Adam. So this gets back into our union stuff, of you only have two covenant choices. You either, you either remain in Adam by unbelief, like you're born, you don't ever make a decision for Jesus kind of thing, you don't ever come to faith in Jesus, you are in Adam. Unless you come uh, to be in Jesus, the second Adam, by grace through faith. Romans 5, starting in 17, says, For if by one man's trespass death, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's just going back and forth between these two Adams. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, this is a really fun verse we can get into, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Application stuff. This is why uh, there is this deep soul level need for approval in all of us. We've got to validate our existence. Uh, we have got to know that we are valued. We want to know that we are loved. Mad Men. I did not see it. I cannot speak for its quality. Or, you know, Don Draper. But there is this line. Don Draper is like I think the lead in Mad Men. This is in the first episode. He says, "You know what happiness is?" He's an he's an advertising uh, agent, and and so he he. Um, ad rep and uh, he's explaining this to a, a potential client. He says, you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams, that reassures whatever you're doing, it's okay. You are okay. That's it. Everything from pornography to Facebook likes to You text someone and, and maybe it's a joke or it's a question and you want the answer and you don't get the answer and you're sitting there staring at your phone wondering what in the world could the other person be doing? To, I mean, for, to work, to GPAs, to relationships, to partying, to uh, all the religions of the world that are based on works, being good enough for God in the next life, uh, to your church involvement. How involved are you gonna be in your church? Being a good moral Christian who is, quote, on fire for Jesus. This is the stuff we use to validate ourselves to God uh, and or to the world. Um, There's this uh, the SNL skit, Will Ferrell, and it's a dinner scene, family in the suburbs, and they're quietly cutting up their dinner. I mean, so you can hear like the clanking you know, they're cutting out their dinner and they're, they're trying to make conversation. They You know, one parent asks a question and it just erupts. You know, they just rub each other the wrong way and it just erupts into all this argument and they're screaming at each other. Uh, and the thing that Will Ferrell, the dad says, screams to end the argument is, I drive a Dodge Strat- Stratus. <laughs> totally nailed that. I, dr- I drive a Dodge Stratus. That's the thing. Like, that's the thing that justifies Will Farrell dad, in the argument. And it's, it's ridiculous, but so is everything else that we use to justify our existence in our, and to seek approval from others. And so the question is, how can a sinful person be right before God, we can't do it ourselves, so God sends in his mercy, God sends a substitute. Sends a, a, a second Adam. Now here's one way to think about There's one way to think about uh, justification is to use this courtroom metaphor. This is like the really popular metaphor to understand justification. So if you haven't heard it, I want you to hear it. Uh, So you imagine there's a courtroom. Imagine a courtroom, rich mahogany, uh, and there is God. He's the judge. And you're standing before God, uh, the judge, and you are the defendant. And the devil stands there as the prosecuting attorney making his case against you to God. And the devil accuses you. The charges are high treason. And the devil appeals to God's word. He appeals to the law. He appeals to God's standard. And there is mountains of evidence against you. And it's all true. <laughs> it's all true, you did it. Now, if, the, if, if God the judge looks on you, on your own account, then in his perfect justice, he has to declare you guilty. And he has to declare that you are justly deserving of a just sentence, which is condemnation. That's the hell stuff. Death, death. And so to save us, God, the judge, must somehow secure a verdict that's favorable to you. So, God, the judge, what he does is he sends his son. He sends his son. There is... (laughs) There is another covenant of works. This one between God the Father and God the Son. And the Son of God agrees to do the work that Adam failed to do. And not only agree to do the work that Adam failed to do, of living a perfect life of righteousness, he also agrees to pay the penalty for Adam's failure and our failure. And then God the Father agrees to reward the work of the Son. So, the Son of God willingly leaves the bliss of his of his father's glory, he takes on flesh, incarnation, he's born in a manger, he grows up an ordinary peasant in podunk town, uh, nowhere, during imperial, impo- imperial occupation of his country, uh, he lives a perfect life of obedience, uh, he he's, uh, uh, completely fulfills the law, he loves God perfectly, he loves his neighbors perfectly. And yet, he is rejected by the majority of his fellow countrymen and leaders to the point where he is arrested. He is tried for high treason against God, uh, against his own people. He's tried for treason against the state, and he's convicted by false witness, false witnesses, and he's sentenced to execution by a coerced and corrupt state. He is cruelly tortured by Roman soldiers, and he is finally executed as a criminal. And that is not the height of his suffering. Because imagine the courtroom again, as the gavel, you know, there you are, the devil's making his case against you, all the evidence in the world. As the gavel of God's judgment is coming down, in the dramatic moment of all dramas, God turns his eyes from looking at you, and he turns to Jesus. And he declares Jesus is guilty. And the gavel comes down. And on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty that you deserve, taking your eternal condemnation. On the cross, Jesus, he bears the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. And that means our sins are, our sins are propitiated. That's a fancy word that means God's wrath toward our sins it is exhausted completely. The wrath of God is fully satisfied in Jesus. He propitiates God's wrath for our sin. And this means that our sin and our guilt are expiated. As in uh, uh, the, our sins and our guilt, uh, uh, the guilt of our sins is fully removed from us. And Jesus was buried. And it remains under the power of death for three days, the scripture says. And that is not the end of the story. Because you're not, at that point, imagine the courtroom again, and and you're up there. You're not up in that heavenly courtroom at that point, pumping your fists, wiping your brow, just yet. Because if you're going to be justified, Jesus has got to be raised from the dead. This is Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and He was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection... The re- like, this. ring the bell on this one. This is really big. Because the resurrection stuff, this is not usually talked about with justification. But resurrection is it's, it's vital to our justification, because you got to remember the one big difference between Adam and Jesus and in their respective covenants, is that Jesus the second Adam not only has to live a life of perfect obedience, he also has to pay the penalty for Adam's disobedience and for our disobedience. Another difference is, Jesus received a much greater reward than Adam. Not, not heaven, but, but this. Uh, uh, because of his covenant faithfulness, God not only gives Jesus heaven, he highly exalts him by raising Jesus from the dead and seating him upon the throne of heaven itself. God the Father gave his Son the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's one New Testament scholar uh, Lee Irons, he says, in his death, Christ was judicially handed over on account of our sins. Our sins were the judicial basis of his death. So he was condemned because of our transgressions. But in his resurrection, the judicial relationship changes. By being raised from the dead, Christ was vindicated, Christ was acquitted, he was freed of all charges, he was justified. He was declared to be righteous and accepted as such in the court of heaven. He, so this is just, he was guilty and condemned for our disobedience. But then he was justified and raised because of his obedience. This is all according to the arrangement he makes with God the Father from eternity. God the Father looking at God the Son says, you go do this. If you go do what they didn't do, and you pay for what they did do, as in, you suffer eternal wrath. I'm going to reward you with eternal glory. And this is the stuff where the devil is like, well, no, that's not fair. Like, no, not fair. No, I win, you lose. And God says, no, not going to happen. What does that have to, the question is, what does that have to do with us? His justification and resurrection, truly, you could say his life, his death his resurrection his justification is the basis of our justification and resurrection jesus's resurrection becomes the judicial basis of our justification so our sin caused christ's death but christ's life causes us to be freed of our guilt and our sin so if you go back to the courtroom and you imagine that that courtroom thing when you put your faith in jesus then when god the judge looks at you he does not see your record because your record of sin and disobedience it has been given to jesus your record has been this is what they call imputation your record has been imputed it's an accounting transferring term your record has been credited has been accounted to Jesus, it's a forensic legal term. It does not, it doesn't uh, refer to a change in you. And it's not talking about a change in Jesus. It's just talking about accounting, transferring. Your record is counted to Jesus. And what do you get in return? Well, You get Jesus's record. He gets your record of disobedience. You get his record of obedience. And now when God the judge looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ. That is the great exchange. So Jesus takes the guilty verdict for us and he gets our condemnation. He gets hell on the cross. That means we get the verdict Jesus should have gotten. We are declared just, fully righteous. Uh, uh, So our, our verdict is not, we say this way too often in the church, the verdict is not not guilty. The verdict is not innocent. As in, you know what? In our court of law, we can't reasonably prove you're guilty. So this is different. This is, this is different from the courts in the United States. In heaven, we are pronounced justified. We are pronounced and declared righteous, but only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. And we receive it by faith alone. Meaning... It has nothing to do with what I have done. It has nothing to do with what I will do. And we get what Jesus deserved, what he earned, heaven. And now in that courtroom, uh, in heaven, Satan no longer has an accusation against you. Since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension up into heaven, Satan's accusations are silenced, case is closed. Revelation describes it as him being literally kicked out of heaven. He's thrown out of the courtroom, so all that he can do now is come for you and try to deceive you that all this stuff is not true. So, um, I I, I'm gonna, I could pause there and ask questions, but I'm going to do this from a different angle and hopefully kind of maybe clear up some questions that we might have raised with the metaphor itself. Let me press on. Let me press on here. Because the courtroom metaphor is super helpful, is super great, but it can make the timing of all of this Everything I kind of just laid, it can make it a little tricky to follow. So let's let's look at this from the perspective of union. So remember we talked about union last time? Remember there are uh, three different ways of thinking about union? One union, but uh, these three kind of manifestations of it. There's predestinarian union. In God the Father's covenant of works with God the Son from all eternity... Jesus stands as our representative head. Remember, like it's like Adam being our head. Well, Jesus stands as our representative head as our substitute, our mediator, and we, his people, we are elect in Jesus before the foundation of the world, before you're ever born, before you're created. This is how the Bible speaks of it. Of we're not yet created, but we are contemplated as elect in Jesus, as elect in union with Jesus. Already, okay? Well then, that plan actually goes into action in the redemptive historical union. There's, there's predestinarian union, there there's redemptive historical union. As in, when Jesus died for all his people, we were included in the efficacy of that death. So this is similar to when Adam made that bad decision and ate of the fruit, Ooh, we all died in him right there. We hadn't even been born. And we, we're, we are contemplated, we are counted as dead in Adam. When Jesus on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. And in his resurrection, his ascension up into heaven, Satan kicked out of that courtroom. Truly, you are contemplated in union, in that past historical sense, as him being our, our they use this term, federal, federal representative head. Legal representative representative head so you're contemplated as being in Jesus redemptive historically but that's redemption accomplished by our covenant head you are not actually that salvation is not actually applied to you yet not until you believe so but uh, this is this is how the stuff of wait how did anyone before Jesus came, like the Old Testament Israelites, Abraham, Adam, like how were they saved before Jesus came? It's this. It's because the redemptive historical union of being—it's con- so certain what the Son of God is going to come and do from eternity in history. It's so certain what He's going to do, and there's no way He's not going to do it that they're putting their faith in this promise and they're already considered being in him, not just in the predestinarian sense, but in that redemptive historical sense that will take place, and so you are forgiven because of what Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, will come and do, okay? But then this gets into the third uh, aspect of union, application union, or present personal union, there's not a good name for it, Uh, but this is generally what we think of union with Jesus. Union with Christ in our life experience. So the Spirit here. Here's the Ordo Salutis, which is a recent concept in the past few hundred years. It's biblical. It's good, but it's just not been systematized like this till, you know, past five hundred years or so. Um, the Spirit effectually calls you. This is uh, you can read about this in the Westminster Shorter Chasm, Catechism, Question Thirty One. The Spirit effectually calls you. That means you're, you're like, it's like you're asleep. The Spirit comes up, wake up. And that calling of you really wakes you up. It is effectual, it wakes you up. And you're waking up is like regeneration. So the Spirit effectually calls you. Uh, uh, we're effectually, you know, this is minds enlightened, renewed, our wills, we're awake. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, um, uh, convicts us of sin, misery. This is like opening our eyes, waking up, uh, which regenerates us, wakes us up. So the Spirit effectively calls, we're we're woken up, we're regenerated, minds enlightened, we're renewed wills, and we are gifted faith. And this regeneration, regeneration causes faith. We're gifted faith by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can embrace Jesus Christ this gospel, as he's offered to us in this gospel. And by that faith, we are united to Jesus. This is why some theologians call it the two-fold bond of union is really effectual calling, the Spirit coming and calling you and gifting you faith, and you, with this faith that you've been given, grabbing onto Jesus. The twofold bond of, of union. Uh, <clears throat> um, and we, we, uh, by faith, we are united to the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ, and by grace, through that faith we are justified and we can continue on and say and we are sanctified by grace through faith and we will be glorified by grace through faith so here's this is the this is kind of the important point here for as far as just how does this work out in our faith when are we justified Uh, Lane Tipton another systematic theologian says we want to make the distinction That we are not existentially personally united to Christ in our personal lives until that moment of faith. This is like this aspect of union that we're talking about. He calls it present personal union. Present personal union brings to fruition and fulfillment all that was decreed for the church from eternity. That's that. Uh, predestinarian union and all that was accomplished for the church in the humiliation that's the life and death and exaltation resurrection ascension of Jesus in his life death resurrection and ascension the declaration of righteousness that happens before the tribunal of divine justice does not occur before the spirit wrought union with Christ by faith before spirit wrought union with Christ by faith and the reception of his righteousness by the sole instrument of faith it's then and only then that the declaration happens before the tribunal of divine justice in heaven. So, when was I justified? I don't know. I was young. But at some point when, when I did put my faith in Jesus, in heaven that, declar- that declaration is being made. Justified. Okay, so here's where we am going to get into some application stuff. We're going to end and take questions. So just a few. And we're doing really good on time. Um... Just a few, few applications make you think about this. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, Believing in forgiveness is really hard. As you said, believing in forgiveness is really hard because the default mode of our hearts is to believe because the default mode of our hearts is to want to earn it. So the default mode of our hearts is that the repeated failures is too much for God to cover. And God is going to get sick of covering the same stuff over over and over and over and over and over again. But here's the beauty of justification. Justification is not simply about grace and mercy. It is also about justice. Just checking, kids okay? I think we're okay. Okay. It's not simply about grace and mercy justification. This is also about justice, as in, your debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. It would be unjust of God to demand more payment from you. As in God the Father, I guarantee you, God the Father is not up in heaven looking at His Son and saying, "Listen, I like really what you did. It was really awesome. Like I know it's a big deal, but this guy right here, like he won't stop like being a jerk, and he's asking for yeah. Like I can't. Like you were awesome, but that's not happening. He's not looking at Jesus saying, "Sorry, what you did was great, but it's not enough. That would be unjust of our totally just God. God's justice." It is the basis of his grace that's the life death resurrection of jesus that is the basis of our justification it's just he's gracious to you because his justice has been upheld in life and death so if you ask jesus for forgiveness you ask god for forgiveness guess what he must forgive you he has to when you ask in faith Uh, because what jesus has done he must forgive you because he is just as well as gracious. And we can go into this, but this is, this is, I always come back to this because this is big for me. When you ask God for forgiveness, you do not ask God to forgive you because you love him. You don't ask God to forgive you because you're so sorry for your sins. You don't ask God to forgive you because you hate your sin. That was a one-time thing. I can't believe I fell back into that. God, you know that's not me. I've been really good lately just to slip. Come on, forgive me. You don't ask God to forgive you because you, I'm going to do, I'm going to do better. You, you know it, you can count on it. You sh- all that stuff should be in your head of, you should be sorry for your sin, hate your sin, strive to do better, strive to repentance, turn away from it, turn to God in love. All of that, yes, but that is not why you ask God to forgive you. None of that is the basis that God ever forgives your debt of sin. The only basis that God forgives you. The only basis on which you should ever ask for forgiveness is because of what Jesus has done for you. And so the the prayer is really simple. God, forgive me a sinner because of Jesus. I did this. I I said this. I should have done this. Forgive me because of Jesus. Uh, Here's another little application. When you ask people what Jesus has done for you, Uh, Or when you ask other people, hey, what do you think Jesus has done? Most people will say, uh, well, he died for your sins. Yes. And. Like, yeah, but more. I said, imagine you want to buy a $50,000 car. Your problem is not that you're $50,000. It's not that you don't have $50,000. Your problem is that you're $50,000 in debt. So if I come along to you and I say, man, I'm going to take care of your debt. Can you go buy that car? No. Not only do you have to have your debt paid, you have to have that credit given to you as well. So if all Jesus does is forgive your sins and wipe the slate slate clean for you, that doesn't get you to heaven. If all Jesus did on the cross was cancel your debt, how are you going to get the rest of the way? And this is when most Christians will respond and say something like, this is where I come in. Like that's why I obey, that's why I obey God, that's why I pray, that's why I read the Bible, that's why I love him, that's why I love others, that's why I laid down my life for my brother and sister. No, if that were the case, you would have to go obey perfectly for the rest of your life. It's not gonna happen. This is Paul's whole thing of he realized, oh, I tried covet. I tried not to covet. And I realized I couldn't do it for like more than a, a minute or two. So, uh, but this is why Christians are trying, uh, this is what Christians are trying to do and a big reason why we live with a lot of shame and guilt in our lives. Uh, Here's another one, application. Justification is our weapon against the devil. Uh, So that when that devil comes with his deceptions and you hear that voice in your head, hey, yeah, you are better than those people. Your response is, whoa, 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 wait. No, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm not better than those people. Uh, When that voice comes in and says, sin is really not that big of a deal, your response is, seems to me sin is such a big deal that it costs nothing less than the Son of God to come and live and die as a man. Um, The accusations come. I mean, this is stuff where we could, the applications, they're endless, so I'm, I'm rushing through these. When the devil comes with accusations, And he says, you've been gossiping again. You've been looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. You were just mean again. You can't take criticism. Like listen to you, listen to how mean you are, defensive you are. Shouldn't be thinking about that. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be spending your money on that. Whatever it is, you're not good enough. You're terrible, you're the worst. How could God love you? You are guilty and you know it. The response to those accusations is, yeah, all of that is true. It's true. I, you know what? And I'm not denying any of it. because This could also be your own conscience. Of course, I do not deserve God's love. I am the worst. And the truth is, I'm actually much worse than the devil thinks I am. And I'm much worse than I think I am. Uh, and uh, God forgives me because of Jesus. Um, the voices of Satan, the, you know, the, your own conscience... The voices of others, they are supposed to be silenced by the gospel. And here's the funny, funny, wonderful stuff about the gospel. Uh, You turn the, the enemy of the weapon back on himself because when those accusations come to you and your eyes are open to maybe how awful you are, maybe more awful than you previously thought yesterday, what that should do is make the cross bigger to you. When your sin is pointed out to you, It's not shame and beating yourself up. It's the glory and awesomeness of, oh wow, I'm so much worse than I thought I was. And Jesus loves me and has forgiven me. As in, this is like, it's fuel for the fire. This is pouring gas on the fire of the awesomeness of the gospel. The cross gets bigger. You can actually subvert the weapon of the enemy against him rather than it dragging you down into a pit of shame. is it leaves you in love and awe of God and his awesomeness and grace. So uh, that, let me give you just one more. Um, think, about like, think about how you live most of your life in relation to other people. I think for most of us, we live our lives like a PR campaign. Because what you're really concerned about is approval of others and what do others think of you. This group wants you to be the funny one. I can be the funny one. This one wants me to be the smart one. I can be the smart one here too. Like you're living your life according to what do these people expect me to be? And our lives are riddled with anxiety. And uh, and you'll go and you'll see some good counselors. Uh, The wisdom of the world is listen, you should not live your life based on the approval of others. The only approval you need is Abner's approval, just kidding. Your approval. You don't need to live for other people's approval. You just need to live for your approval. Uh, This is what, I'm just gonna read this one verse. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse three. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. No one says that of like, listen, I'm not concerned about your approval. And guess what i'm not even concerned about my own approval i don't like me that's okay because the only person whose approval matters jesus god himself adores you and approves of you declares you are totally completely righteous that helps with the approval and the anxiety also uh, i think this was one of the trip brothers i think it was paul trip um, said that those who give the greatest grace are those who know they need it most. The thing of how am I going to be gracious to others? Actually, if you see how much you need it, it does this weird thing of, I see my need of it. How could I not? It, it's, it becomes more of a uh, just afterthought of extending that same grace to other people. Um, Hey, I, I am gonna end here. There's more we could say. I want to hear your questions, but let's let's try one last thing. Hey, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Wake up. Okay, everybody standing. Okay. Keep standing. If you honestly, everyone's gotta be righteous. And you know what? Righteous, sorry. Truthful. Honest. Everybody close their eyes. Can I close your eyes? No cheating. Everyone keep standing if you think you are as righteous as your best friend. Okay, everyone keep standing if you think you're as righteous as your pastor. Nobody look, keep your eyes closed. Everybody keep standing if you think you are as righteous as the Apostle Peter. Everyone keep standing if you think you are as righteous as Jesus. Oh, we lost a couple at the end there. (laughs) Loved ones, everyone should be standing. Everyone stand up. Loved ones, this is the beauty of the gospel of justification, is in Christ you are counted, you are declared as righteous. You have merited heaven not because of your own merit, but because of the merit that is imputed to you because of Jesus. This is the beauty of justification in the gospel. We're going to talk about how that relates to our sanctification and all that other hard stuff. Uh, I'm going to open this up for questions, but just this is Westminster Shorter Catechism 33. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Okay, y'all, sit, if you want to say it, you can sit. If you want to stretch your legs, have at it. But um, let me stop there uh, and open it up for questions. Tim. I knew it. Uh, the question was was Adam predestined to fail so let's because this actually really is a good question because uh, there there are all kinds of people so much so much smarter than me um, have come up with all kinds of systems of how to understand the relationship between God offering Adam a covenant of works a well-meant offering you obey you get heaven and not only for you but for everybody how do, you, how do we reconcile that with predestinarian union, predestination, election? Uh, how does it relate? You know, I think the best way to think about it is how does it relate to how does uh, God's covenant of works with Adam relate to God the Father's covenant of works with God the Son? And this is where you get into, if you all want to hear these terms, infralapsarian, superlapsarian, lapsarian being the fall? That means answering the question. Uh, I don't know that that stuff's helpful because I think what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to get ourselves outside of time and space and into the counsel of God, the eternal counsel of God, which I will, not, I don't think we'll ever be there. I don't even think in heaven we will be able to comprehend the eternal counsel of God, except what he has revealed to us. I think instead of thinking in terms uh, temporally, like what happened first, did this happen or this? I think you think how the Bible presents it is logically of God uh, offered Adam a well-meant offering of eternal glory based on works. That failed. God the Father looks to God the Son and offers him a well-meant offering of glory based on works. Go and do what the first Adam failed to do and pay his penalty, and I will reward you with a kingdom of glory so did god predestine adam to fail i don't know if i don't know if uh so i also don't want to get ahead of sunday this sunday during the service we're talking about effectual calling and, and regeneration and stuff so who ever thought second thessalonians first thessalonians had this you know much power power punch but um so we're gonna we are gonna talk about i think more of that this next sunday um But the short answer is I think the best way is to think about it uh, covenantally and and logically. Uh, Obviously, what we have to conclude is God offered Adam a well meant offering, but it was not in the eternal will of God uh, that he would obey. Because God's eternal will is always accomplished. He is sovereign over everything, and everything he sovereignly wills it is inevitably accomplished just the way He wants it to be accomplished, and then there's His revealed will of I want you to do this and this and this, live like this, don't do this, and we we break that all the time. But so you know, when we're talking about His His um, His eternal will, the eternal counsel of God, it is lame metaphor, but it's like trying to fit an ocean into a thimble, and we're the thimble, God's wisdom is the ocean. It just doesn't. We cannot comprehend, but so we do have to conclude that that was not a part of God's eternal will that Adam obey, so it's a good question, Ethan yeah Yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great great question. The question is, you know, if we're talking temporally logically, you know, Jesus right now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus right now is the eternal intercessor, mediator between God and his people still interceding for us in heaven. That's going on, Satan being thrown out. um, How does that relate to justification? I would just say with with the devil being thrown out, I I really think that is a redemptive historical uh, thing of... uh, So when we talk about the eternal counsel of God and and the Trinity, the Trinity, the triune God exists outside of time and space, but he's the only one who does. So uh, heaven and earth are creations. The angels are created beings. Heaven does not exist outside of time and space. It's a different space, different dimension. Time may work differently there. I don't know. I know it works differently for God, but there is, there is this, uh, you know, angels, they are limited in terms of Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. Um, he is not outside of time and space. So they operate. They operate differently from us. they are higher forms of being than us. That is true. They can go between heaven and earth. That is true. We cannot. Uh, unless God rips us out of this into heaven, that has happened to some people. Super awesome. Um, one day that divide is blown away. Heaven on earth. That stuff is real. So, I think I think when Revelation Revelation 12 talks about, it talks about the 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 death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from two perspectives. One, what happens on earth, and then what's going on in heaven after He accomplishes this. And I think it's describing Satan literally being kicked out of heaven. So that when you, when you read Job in the Old Testament, Satan still has access to heaven. He can still go there. He can make his case. Hey, Job, you know the only reason he serves you is because you're good to him. And look at all this stuff you've given. Take it away. He'll hate you. Uh, like, so, so there is there, it's revealed that Satan does have access to heaven. But then I think once Jesus ascends into heaven you know redemptive historically something has changed and satan is kicked out of heaven he no longer has access to the throne room and now he is left to wander the earth uh and how this, i don't know how this what's on the other side of that other spatial dimension outside of, i don't know how this works out but all he is left to do now with regard to you is to tempt you uh, and accuse you that no this stuff is not real and try to make your life as miserable as possible. And since he can't see inside your heart, maybe he's right that you're not a believer as he doesn't want you to be a believer and he can cause you to apostatize. So all I have to say is what is Jesus doing right now in heaven? I don't think Jesus is sitting there arguing against Satan in heaven as our intercessor. I think he is looking at God the Father as our intercessor. They are justified as in, this thing of you come to faith, you, you were not a believer, and now you're a believer, I think that stuff is going on in heaven of justified. And there's Jesus as our intercessor, as our mediator, as living testament uh, to our justification based on what he has done. Does that, does that answer? Does that help? Um, I think there's... Obviously, that's not the only thing Jesus is doing in heaven, reigning... Uh, uh but i think with regard to our justification i think i think the intercession is speaking to uh our justification as well um good question chris yes That's a great, so Chris's question was, Satan knows uh, scripture really well. He knows history really well. What's the point of trying to tempt those who have been justified? That's an excellent question. Part of it is, I don't know. I mean, but, but what we do know is he is prowling like a lion trying to destroy uh, unbelievers as well as believers. Make your life as, miser- as miserable as possible. Try to cause you to doubt your assurance as much as possible, question your faith. Question Jesus, uh, uh, in terms of it's not true, it didn't happen. I think the purpose is uh, he hates, he hates you. Only ill will towards you, Um, and so I think it's motivated by hate and jealousy and envy for you, for God, for Jesus, Um, and so. But also, I mean, you could read the Screw Tape letters. This is C.S. Lewis trying to get into the mind of the devil. And, and Lewis writes, after he wrote that book, he writes about how awful an experience that was, that he went to these really dark places that he doesn't want to go back to, of dwelling on things he wishes he probably should not have been dwelling on. It's a brilliant book. It's written from the perspective of two devils, writing about how they mess people up and tempt and accuse people, but, so, it's probably the best answer I can give in a couple of minutes. It's a good question. Neil? So you, you understand imputation, but you have a hard... I, I barely heard you. You have a hard time understanding. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So the question is, I understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but I don't understand how I am as righteous as Christ. And this is stuff we'll get into next time with uh, sanctification, because what we don't want to say is... Uh, that you are justified on the basis of any infused righteousness by the holy spirit like what the holy spirit does in you and the good works he does through you that has nothing to do with the basis of your uh uh, justification before god so this is why a lot of theologians will call and this is right uh, the righteousness that you have is an alien righteousness it's alien to you because it is not it's not from you. It is yours by faith because it has been credited to you. So when you can say, so when we say, and we want to be really careful when we point this up, which is why I think this is an R.C. Sproul illustration of stand up, and let's see who keeps standing up. Uh, it does get at this thing of, are you as righteous as Christ? Yes, because his, his righteousness is your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, but it really has truly been counted to you. So you can, and you have to be able to say, when you you know you stand before God, why should I let you into heaven? Because of Jesus. Uh, and because I have his righteousness counted to me. I am right. Before this, I've been declared right before. So this, the, the awesome thing too about, if we're gonna do glorification, justification is one of those things that has been intruded in time and space. Is what it really, really belongs to is, we're talking about judgment day, end day stuff, uh, where everyone comes before the the throne of God for judgment, our judgment, future judgment, it has been intruded in time and space. That's our justification, and it will be manifested openly for everyone to see, in our glorification, publicly, publicly declared. So, um, you know that that yeah, maybe I'll we'll just I'll stop there because we'll talk more with sanctification and. Uh, Uh, the righteousness of sanctification. But when we say we are as just as Jesus, it's not our righteousness. It's His. But it's really been counted to us. So it's ours by faith in union with Him. Does that help, does that help, Neil? Okay. Yes. And, it's good. But, but this seems to come kind from of like the Justin, and, and I know the holiness is what his expectation for us is. His perfection. Mm-hmm. So, uh, question was: When you're justified, are you also uh, made holy? Um, I think, I, I think that's where we should, we can take other questions, but I think we should push pause on that question because we need to talk about sanctification too, and holiness in with in regards to sanctification, um, and because I think too, we want to, uh, we do want to talk about holiness as this ethical. I want to be really careful and specific when I talk about holiness biblically because I think when the Bible talks about holiness it's talking about uh, like ethical rightness like between right and wrong, right, that's holiness like ethical perfection, holiness which I think is an aspect of glory but it's only one aspect of glory I think there are others like his kingliness his dominion and power is another aspect of his glory. And it's his power is holy. It's a holy power. But I think there are um, distinctions we want to make there. So, so we, we will get to talk about are we holy uh, next Sunday when we talk about sanctification. Um, that's a good question. Others. DJ. So That's a good so the question is um, uh, to talk about to talk about uh to talk about justification in terms of th- there's a point where I'm not justified and a point where I'm justified, does that uh, connote in any way that God changes or changes his mind? I think w- obviously what I want to say is God is immutable, so he does not change. Uh, so God, God is above change uh, uh, and immutable in his goodness, holiness, righteousness, justice, love. Um, so so no and I, I I would say no and I don't think maybe you could point up do you see do you uh, is there some um because the thing too is does he look on us uh what I want to say is he has not declared us to be uh like ju- that, that final judgment day he has not declared us to be um uh condemned uh uh before we come to like before our pronouncement of faith like I want to be careful talking about an intrusion of condemnation um but there has been this intrusion of justification because of what Jesus has done in time so does he change his mind that's where I get into the eternal counsel stuff and I no I don't think he changes his mind uh I don't think he I don't think he I don't think he changes but i think i think we also use language that we understand to describe what god is doing um but i i don't see the discrepancy between us the declaration of justification not being declared until we have actually appropriated it by faith i I don't see that a, a change in his mind but a progression of what's happening in history itself the the actual accomplishment and then application of redemption um Hugh I'll think about that more let's see if I can it's probably not as clear yeah Hugh When is someone capable of doing what? So I think, yeah, I think, um, so when we talk about predestination and election, I don't think that's part of the order of salvation, like salvation, uh, sorry, applied. I think that's more of uh, the plan of salvation being accomplished. Um, So this is my head as I'm thinking, uh, pointing to different sides of space. predestination I wouldn't consider that part of the ordo part I I think the beginning of the order of salvation the application of salvation is the spirit effectually calling you by which he regenerates you and gives you faith by which you can then uh, grab on to Jesus and Yeah. No, like with a kid, I think, uh, sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing you, but I think I heard you like with a child who's, who's, um, is it possible for a child to be regenerated, uh, before actually having the mental capacity to appropriate Jesus by faith? Yes. I would say yes, because this is the work of the spirit. And so it is the spirit who calls and it is the spirit who calls and it's always effectual when the spirit calls. Uh, and, and his work of regeneration you can't not if the spirit is at work he's going to regenerate those who, whom he wants to regenerate so that, that stuff of, like, of, of little kids I think that's where we can trust God in his activity uh, to, uh, to be just uh, to be all loving um, and so I don't think again I don't think this is a I, do, I, I, I mean it's hard but I think, I think what we've got to go on is, is how the scriptures describe calling, describe faith, uh, describe regeneration. It's the work of the spirit in his own timing in whom he wills to work. Uh, and, and you're not able to resist it, not even the worst of us. Uh, I would say, can he, can he who made you know, man from dust regenerate a child, regenerate a child who is disabled yeah, absolutely. Um, I, think the or, I think what we're talking about are the ordinary ways that the scriptures describe the, the application of salvation. And so I think what we, are, what we are encouraged to do is to put our faith in Jesus. Uh, it's, it's by grace through faith that we are justified uh, in our union with Christ. You've got to be united to him by faith. Uh can the spirit work that in anyone he chooses? I would just say a simple yes. When he chooses. Lindsay. Yeah. Well, so. I, well, I, I think I'd want to draw some distinctions. In co- the question is, yeah, uh, the conver- the question is in conversations, things are brought up like God created sin, God created the devil, the devil's already fallen when he comes to the garden, sin's already there. So what's up with how does all that work out? Um, I think I would want to draw some distinctions as far as God did not create sin. I think that's the first thing you want to make really clear. God God didn't sin. God didn't uh, 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 make the devil sin. He created angelic beings and human beings with free will to choose good, to choose evil. And we ask, well, why would he do that? That seems like a bad idea, uh, it, 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 except he's a good creator, uh, and the only other option would be robots, which... Um, It's not a real relationship. So he creates, I mean, and this is like, so what we're starting with in the story of the garden is we're starting with uh, man and woman and they're created good and they're given a job to do. They're given a task to do. And then this, yeah, this outside agent comes in and and what we're told is they're supposed to be aware and, and wary of an intruder into this holy place. And what they're supposed to do is kick him out of the garden. And that would have been, at that moment, that's the work given Adam to do is to judge at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To choose good, that's his test. Choose good and expel the serpent out of the garden. That would have been judgment day right there for the devil and his angels, those who followed him. There is a war already going on in heaven. And what what the scriptures tell us, Genesis, there's stuff in Ezekiel, is that what god orchestrates through his creation is to bring this is all according to god's plan the design is to bring this devil usurper uh to his to his creation to god's creation man and man is going to be the judge of the devil except man sides with the devil and that's the entrance of sin into the world so um I think I'd want to be careful and draw those distinctions in you know conversations with with others. Of God is just. God did not create sin. He created a world in which there could be sin. There was the possibility of sin because He created um, uh, angels and humans in His image, with the capacity to choose right or wrong, uh, the capacity for uh, dominion and power uh, and beauty and the devil and Adam and Eve choose evil uh, but God won't let that be the end of the story God has a plan and so the son comes to do what Adam failed to do which is defeat the devil and overcome evil and pay the price for our sin I, I want to be careful talking about what, what's not totally revealed to us and I'm not, assu- I'm not sure how all that went down in heaven. There's, there's we're, we're told very, very little. We can ask Jesus about that in a few years. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're, we're told very little. I think what we're told is that bad guy in heaven and the way it's orchestrated, it was a beautiful plan. It was not according to God's will that it would go down this way, but the plan is really awesome and beautiful. Of Because uh, Satan's purpose, the, sorry, the angel's purpose is to serve mankind. That's the purpose of angels, is to be our servants. But angels are such higher beings, the devil didn't like that. Why would I serve something lower than me? And so he rebels, and he comes to destroy God's good creation uh, and thwart it, and by design, Adam is actually supposed to side with God, his creator, but he doesn't, he sides with the devil. And so, there's... Okay. But I want to be careful saying much more than that. Cuz we're not told all about the the war in heaven and how their disobedience affects us and yeah, how that disobedience affects the sanctity of heaven and yeah. I I don't know. I'll be careful. I know God that I know that God delays his judgment, which is why there is a world in the first place still so if he can suffer satan i I, yeah yeah i think we're at the end of our time so let me do this let me pray for us hold on to your questions you can always do follow-up questions with me um and and next sunday we'll be here and we'll do sanctification let me pray for us real quick father we thank you for uh the gospel of jesus christ uh this good news that Jesus has uh, come and he has lived and he has died and he has been raised, ascended, and he now reigns in heaven, interceding for us. We praise you for your justice. We praise you for your grace and mercy. Uh, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. We pray that this would, uh, that this would bless us and help us uh, to, to know your love more, to trust you more, to be assured of our salvation, uh, come what may. Uh, to love others and to share this gospel of grace with others that we are no more deserving than anyone else in this world, Uh, uh, that we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, Help us to hold that out to others, that others may come in faith to our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.